really look at like what this part is. But today I want to actually present um, what's called uh, a biblical theological message, meaning that we're going to look at the whole tree at the same time. So we're going to look at a bunch of different places all at once in that way, okay? So Hebrews chapter 1, and then I'll read John 1, 14, and then we'll jump in, okay? Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then John 1, 14 says this, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, Paul writes in your word, who is sufficient for these things? meaning that no one is. And Lord, I especially feel the weight of that right now. That Lord, as we talk of glory, we speak of your majesty. God, it's like looking at the sun. It's just hard to even look at in that sense. So Lord, help me, help us to comprehend your word. By your Spirit, we pray now, enlarge our hearts to love you more, to love your word, and to seek to obey you. Help us, we pray, God. Help us, we ask. Anoint my lips, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin... Last week, was really, or last week was really an introduction to this series, more than it was anything. Uh, but today is beginning to unpack um, what the church is. What is the church? What is, what is this thing we're here a part of? And, and the church, just so we're clear, is not just a building. I think we know that. We talk, I talk about that a lot. It's not just a building. It's a people. And I think oftentimes, at least my upbringing at least, really focused on what the church does. But to do that, we miss who the church is. And the, the problem with that would be, it would be the same problem as if my wife looked at me and she came home and she said, honey, to be your husband means that I have to, I don't know, go to the grocery store. That's what it means to be your husband. Or like, I have to go pick up food for us. And if she said, that's what it means to be your husband, I'd be like, that's really narrow. <laughs> like that, that's, that's not what it means to be my wife at all. Like, so the question is, we're really asking, what does it mean for the bride of Christ to be the church in that way? That's what we're asking. Who is she? Now, Martin Luther, and, and uh, you should have notes there on the app. I know this morning they're not quite printed in your bulletin, um, but try to, try to follow along if you would. There's, some blank, there's a blank space there below you. But Martin Luther, he described two types of theologies that we can have as the church. 
And I, I fear this first one has really crept in, and it's, the, it's, it's what I would call the theology, or actually what he would call, the theology of glory. Now, what he means by glory is not the good kind of biblical glory. When he says the church has too much of a theology of glory, he means it very, very negatively. He means it like a very vain glory, a kind of self-centered glory. And it could be deduced to three things. This is how I would put it. The first is being smart enough. Smart enough. And it's simply we know better. Smart enough means that when we place our intelligence over Scripture, we are in a bad situation. And this sounds like this. Here's what it would sound like within the church. We as a church, we don't, we don't really follow the Bible. We really follow what we want. I have some gut instincts. This is what we should do as a church. Do you hear that? Have you ever heard that? I hear that often when you ask a church. Go ask a church or another church sometime or even our own. What direction are we going in? And if they say, I don't know, what, how are we feeling? How are we feeling today? What direction do we want to go? No, 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 no. <laughs> the church submits to God's word in that way. He doesn't put its in- intelligence over what the Bible says. So that's the first theology of glory. Let me give you the second. The second is good enough. It's good enough. And I call this one three steps to fill in the blank. Three steps to fill in the blank. Good enough means that we place our own morality out front. Now, this one can look really good. This one can actually parrot itself like a church in that way. Look, we're good enough. Look how, look how good we are as a church. Three steps to removing this persistent sin. Seven steps to having a better marriage. There's nothing wrong with preaching on marriage. There's nothing wrong with getting rid of sin. But the, the essence of what it means to be the church has nothing to do with three steps to this, seven steps to that, do this, and then you'll be good enough. So it's not good enough. It's not smart enough. Let me give you a third one. It's also not strong enough. And this is the mantra of many, 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 many churches. And it's simply try harder. Do better. This idea is appealing because if we just have the right marketing department, if we just have the trendiest designs as a church, if our church has the right aesthetic, If we just put some more lamps, you know what we need? We need lower light in here. We could get more people if we have lower light in here. Strong enough, good enough, smart enough are a theology of glory that I would argue rot the church out. It rots the church from within. These ideas are appealing because they present a quick fix. They present promises even. I love what one author said. I don't have the author here in front of me, but he says this. He says, the theologian of glory is attractive because he offers seven steps for a successful life or three steps for overcoming persistent sin or the the liberal theologian of glory is attractive because he promises a bright new future that we can see, touch, and taste. And he says, we like that. As humans, we like to see things. We can see and touch and taste. Look, look at what we're doing here. This is the theologian of glory. And this is the theologian. And when we do this, I'll, I'll warn us, when we do this, we're heading down a very wrong path. So I want us to first consider who is the church. 
And I would argue the biggest problem here is with the definition of glory. What do we even mean by glory? I love what Daniel Hames, I'm reading a book right now by him called uh, God Shines Forth. Oh, oh, so good, so good. But he says this, and I think it's very helpful. He says, we reason that God, being God, really is the center of the universe. So he has and deserves glory to the highest degree. But while God has no serious competition for his glory, we read into God's glory the same kind of standoffishness, self-centeredness that tends to course through our own veins. And he goes on, the great danger here is a theology of glory that hasn't passed through the prism of the gospel of Jesus. We risk projecting our own darkness and selfishness onto the living God, making him far less good and beautiful than he really is. This will always be the result of starting with our own assumptions rather than the word of God to us. And that is, that warning from him is so important in our own day to when we start defining what is a church, who are we? So I want to give us what he would argue then, and I, what, the, what, the, what argue the scriptures argue. And he goes on, I'll give you one more quote from him. He says, when we begin to see Jesus as himself, the glory of the Father, let him shape our idea of glory, we find that God is far better than we ever dared to believe, and his glory beautifully different from our own. It's beautifully different from our own. So I want to give us, so that's the theology of glory, which is the wrong kind of glory. But then Luther gives us another, the theology of the cross. And I think this is just a helpful category for us to start with. Theology of glory or the theology of the cross. And so the first is the world's definition. The second is God's definition. So let's start with what is glory? What is the glory of God? Now, glory in the Old Testament, you can turn real quick to Exodus 33. I'm going to have you turn around, turn a bunch today. Exodus 33. And this is a very important passage of Scripture. And I think the problem with glory, when we start with our own presuppositions or our assumptions, we speak of glory as though it's just God's reputation. We speak of God as though he's made in our image, that, that all that he wants is really just more people to see him in that way, or, or to see us doing good things or, some, or something in that way. But that's not what first defines the church. So what is the glory of God? I want us to start here. Look down in verse 11. This is what God's word says. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Do, do, you, do you hear that? Even Moses, Moses at one point, he used to meet in what was called the tent of meeting, and he would meet with the Lord face to face, he would meet with him. And you know what Israel was doing that whole time? They were, they were whoring after other, other gods, whoring after the golden calf. And you know what the Lord tells them? I'm going to depart from you. I'm going to leave you. You, you. you all are stiff-necked, I'm leaving you. But I want you to notice, jump down to verse 14. What God tells Moses, or what Moses actually pleads uh, with God, actually the Lord promises Moses, that's what he says. He says, verse 14, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, what he's saying there is not actually a good thing. He's basically saying, I'll bless you. You go out into the land, I'll bless you, and that'll be good enough. But Moses, notice, that's not what he wants. He says in verse 15 then, 
He said, if, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. So what God promises, he said, don't worry, I'll send my blessing with you. Moses says, that's not good enough. I don't want your blessing. I want you to go with us. We need a personal presence. Nothing else will do. Which leads Moses then, in verse 18, notice, look down at verse 18, what Moses says. He asks God, please show me your glory. Not only do I want you to go with me, I want to see you in that way. Now notice what God tells him. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not, for man shall not live and see, and see me in that way. And now what we see happening here is Moses met with God face to face. But there was a difference between the face in which God met with Moses and the face that Moses is talking about here. Now that word for glory, that the word is continually used when Moses even says, please show me your glory, actually is the word in Hebrew for kavod, basically. Or it's, it's heaviness, weighty, weightiness. It's the kind of glory that we see Isaiah run into in Isaiah 6. Listen, this, this is just a helpful way to think about the glory of God here. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are literally angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So even the angels aren't even able to look at God. They're, they're, they're covering their eyes. They're covering their feet, the dirtiest part of them. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Where it shines forth. The weight is all over him. And it only leads Isaiah to say, Woe is me. I'm lost. I am not like that. And we could trace glory now all throughout the Old Testament. We could trace God's glory going into the temple. We could trace his glory leading the people out of Israel. And the glory that Isaiah saw in the heavenly vision, the glory that Israel led Israel in the wilderness, you'd think, oh no, what happens if that glory comes to us? What happens? We'd be consumed. You'd be right. That would be, that would be, that would be what we would think, wouldn't it? But if we were like God, not only would we consume everything, we wouldn't share it with anybody, would we? We'd keep it all to ourselves. If I was the most glorious being, and praise God I'm not, it would be so, I'd be so self-centered, so, so focused in on myself. The God of the Bible is far more beautiful than you and I could ever imagine. This is, this is what the lie in, to, to Eve in the garden was. God's not as beautiful as you think he is. And over and over and over again, we've bought that lie. Or listen to Philip, even one of the guys that walked with Jesus. John 14, you don't have to turn there, it should just be up here. Philip asked Jesus basically the same thing. He's a theologian of glory. Listen to what he says. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. What's Jesus' reply to him, though? 
Philip's, Philip's theology of glory was something like this. Show us something special, Jesus. Show us marvels, Jesus. Reveal to us the true glory of the Father. Now, what does Jesus say to him in verse 9? Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, don't let these words pass through your ears without wondering at this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So it's the glory of God. The glory of God is moving now in this trajectory. Now you can turn real quick. I'm going to have you turn to John 1. John chapter 1. And I want us to consider the one passage I'd already brought up. And it's the glory revealed. So you could, you could trace the glory of God all throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to do that. But the, the, the weightiness, the heaviness, God's shining forthness. What would you think it would look like if it came? You'd probably think, well, don't be near it in that way. But notice what the New Testament opens up and starts saying. It's far different than what me and you imagine. John 1, 14 says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The same glory that led Israel out of the wilderness that literally had to have a cloud wrap around it so the people couldn't see the glory has now made himself known, has now tabernacled amongst us. Whereas John 1, 9, if you jump back to verse 9, what he says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you hear that? The glory of God, when the glory of God comes to town, he doesn't come destroying everything. He comes robed in humility. He comes robed in kindness. God in and of himself is glorious, unlike you and I. So before the church can be known for what she does, she has to be known for who she is. And we are first and foremost, as believers, people who behold glory. You walk into, you just do this sometime. And this is not a judgmental statement. This, this could be just as true of our own church. There are so many churches, even in our own association, even in the association I work with, that do not behold the glory of Christ. And when they see the glory of Christ, what they do is they're like, why don't we do more things? Where's where's the outreach? I love outreach. (laughs) I love outreach. But that's not who we are. Who we are, first and foremost, is we are people who behold and glory and wonder at Jesus Christ. And listen to what he goes on to say in John 1, 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. When we look in the face of Jesus Christ, we don't look in the face of just one normal, average Joe. 
As many liberal theologians would like to tell us, he's just a guy. Doesn't matter. No. We behold, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So where do we see his glory most clearly? Now turn real quick to Hebrews 1, and this will be the last time I think I make you turn. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. And it's the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. And he says, now notice what he says just to start. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, so that's just a shorthand of saying the whole Old Testament. The way God spoke through Ezekiel is different than the way he spoke through Moses. And the way he spoke through Moses was different than the way he spoke through Jeremiah. But all of them are not sufficient to what he says in verse 2. Notice what he says in verse 2. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So he's saying, he's setting up, here's the Old Testament. It's not bad, but it's, it's insufficient. Here comes the sufficient one, though. The one who's going to, as we saw earlier in Revelation 5, open the scroll. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, through whom he also created the world. The age that the Father created through the Son by the Holy Spirit is coming to an end. And He has made Himself known to us. Now notice what He says in verse 3. This one just, it just blows me away every time I see it. This should blow us all away. The same glory that sat in the tabernacle, the same glory that led Israel out of the Exodus, He says, He Who's that? That's not me. That's not, that's not some other thing. That's not some social program. He says he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance is the word that would be used if you th- think about looking at the sun. The sun itself is a big ball <laughs> burning in the sky. But when we look at the sun and we're like, oh, that, that hurts my eyes, that's the radiance. When we look at the sun, the literal sun in the sky, the big ball shining up there, that word radiance means an outshining or a brilliance. The Son of God radiates the glory of God to us. The glory of God seen in the Son of God, giving his life as a ransom for many. He says again in verse 3, He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That word for exact imprint is the same word that we would use for like a stamp. So when we look at the Lord Jesus, we're not just looking at some average Joe. We're looking at God himself coming to tabernacle amongst us through his son. I love what Anthony Hoykema, he goes on to say, he says, every trait, every characteristic, every quality found in the father is also found in the son who is the Father's exact representation. Which is surprising, because if you walk into most churches, the Jesus that they present is so small and so shriveled and so much made in my and your likeness that we can't even tell who he is. So we don't have to wonder what God's like. We look at the Lord Jesus and we see exactly what God's like. The church is not a social club. She is a people 
that behold her Savior. They look upon her Savior and they rejoice in it. Daniel Hames again, he says, Jesus is God shining, going out from the Father in radiant revelation to give himself to us. He is God's face toward, turned toward us. Do you hear that? I want you to notice what he's saying there again. Remember Exodus 33, when God says, I c- no one can see my face and live. All of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And it's the Father. No, numbers, if you think for a second, Numbers 6, this, this is one of the most commonly used blessings in the Old Testament. It says, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face, his face to shine upon you. And for the Christian, this is, this is Jesus. The Lord has turned his face upon us. He is God's face. Back to Hames. He is God's face turned toward us. God's name dwelling with us. God's glory flashing upon us. Jesus shows us a God who's fundamentally outgoing, outshining, self-giving. When we look at the Lord Jesus, we see the heart of God. Now, we haven't got to the last one, the last huge elements. Everything I've said so far, people are like, yeah, sure, that makes sense. What about the last element, though? And I would, I would call this the beholders of glory. This is who we are. We are beholders of glory. Now, in John, this is actually, I was just struck by this even this week. In John 11, this is a very common passage of Scripture, with Lazarus. You can turn to it real quick if you want. We all know the story of Lazarus. Everyone, every, it's, it's referenced so often at, at funerals. And I want you to notice what he says, though. Lazarus has died. Now he says in verse 3, so the sisters, that's Lazarus' sisters, sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And now, oftentimes I've read this story before and thought, like, man, he must not have loved him too much. He let him die. Like, but it wasn't very close detail to the text. Notice what Jesus says in the next verse. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, you're right. I, I, I made you think I loved Lazarus, but I really don't. No. He says, that illness, that doesn't lead to death. You're going to see, telling all his disciples, you're going to see the glory of God. And then he tells them more plainly, to jump down to verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, do you hear that? For your sake, disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad he died. Here's the reason. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. Lazarus' death was for the glory of God. The Son of God, so the Son of God may be glorified in it. So do you notice, he says, Lazarus' death, it's for the glory of God, but then Jesus says, so that also they all may believe. Here it is. You're you're starting to look at the glory of God, even in the New Testament. When me and you believe on the Son, God is glorified in it. The, The face of Jesus Christ shining upon us in that sense, that's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be who we are. 
Jesus is glorified when sinners treasure and trust him above everything else. Whereas 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 6, 4 through 6 says, In their case, that's unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers. Now, what, what did he blind them from? Notice, to keep them from seeing the light of the good news, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you know what the difference between a church and not a church is? The church beholds and wonders and, and marvels at the glory of God. And the unbelievers, they are blinded, literally blinded from seeing the beauty of Christ. For what, and he says in verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referencing Genesis 1, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, we're not just looking at some Joe Schmo from Nazareth. We are looking at God incarnate. Or, or go to even here, and this is where we'll end. Revelation 5, where we started this morning. This is the wonder and the beauty of what happens when God comes near. Everyone thinks immediately when God comes near, it must be judgment. Now, there will be judgment someday, but in His mercy, God is prolonging judgment. But we see in Revelation 5, notice what He says. Jump down to verse 5 of Revelation 5. One of the elders said to me, this is when what we read this morning, he said, who could open the scroll? No one's worthy. He's crying. So he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now that's what he's hearing. He's hearing the lion has come. The majestic, glorious, wonderful lion has come. But notice what he sees in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Do you see the juxtaposition? Do you see the comparison? When God comes near, he's so much like, not like me and you. Because if, if I was like God, we would come near and we'd just smite everybody. I'd be like John. Call down thunder from heaven, Lord. No. This is not what the glory of God does. When he comes near, what's he do? He gives himself. He gives himself so freely, so fully. He doesn't do it through military conquest. He doesn't do it through the brightest and the best. He does it through the least of these. He does it through the most unlikely. When the lion, the majestic lion of the tribe of Judah comes near, you know what we see? the Lamb of God, slain for sinners. Now, listen to what he goes on to say in verse 11. He said, Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all those in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know what this means for me and you as the church? Just very simply. You know, in Moses, if you, you probably recall, but when Moses went up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, just a few passages later, it says, it says that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was talking to God. And brothers and sisters, you know what it means? First and foremost, to be the church has nothing to do with what we do. Has nothing to do with it. This is why, this is why so often, you go do this sometime. Ask somebody in your life, what is a church? Just do it. Ask them that question. What is a church? I guarantee you they can't answer it. And I guarantee you what they'll say is, well, they do good things. They minister to the poor. They, they care. They do outreach. They do, they, we can name all these things. But you know what they never mention? They behold Jesus Christ. The first and foremost wonder that we as the people of God get to stand and sit under, under the Lord Jesus, beholding his glory. And you know what happens when we do this? Our face, as, and not, not literally, maybe, maybe sometimes literally, I don't know. I don't look at your face as you walk out. But as we walk out, and as we hear God's word proclaimed, we hear Jesus lifted up, just like Moses, our face begins to shine. And we begin to look a little different. Notice what he says, what they say. Of, this is, now, this is Jesus' opponents in Acts 4. Peter and John were preaching and they ask him, by what power, or by what name do you do this? And they say, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen to what they say of it. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated. Meaning, you guys aren't very smart. Common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know what it means to be the church? It means we get to come and behold the wonder and glory of Christ. So when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. We always want to take that and be like, oh, we have to go do this. We have to go do that. And we do. Hear me. We'll get there. But before we do anything, we first behold him. And we become like shining lights. You You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You know how that happens? He says, you are the light of the world. Me and you are the light of the world. How? Because we behold Christ. And then we, we get literally illuminated. Joy, wonder, glory. And then we walk out and we're like, man, we're different. I'm not the same as what I used to be. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and we've seen him. Christians then are primarily a beholding people. This is what it means to be a Christian. First and foremost, we, it's before, before you go do anything, you behold, you glory, you wonder at Jesus Christ. We don't do that because Jesus is useful. We do this because he's beautiful. Brothers and sisters, this is the fuel. This is the fuel of mission. This is the fuel of the church. When we behold Jesus Christ, we go out.
It's just what you do. Then then missions doesn't become this thing we go do extra. It's who I am. I'm a missionary everywhere I go. Why? Because I beheld Jesus. I can't not do it. Brothers and sisters, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for that end for us. That we would behold him through his word. That we're not some, Christians today aren't some secondary class citizen. We don't have to, well, we weren't there with Jesus. I don't care. We have the words of Christ. Behold him. Behold him, brothers and sisters. I want to pray for us. And I want to pray that, that for us in that way. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a wonder. Father, I've just been so captured by the beauty of this text, these texts this week. That your glory has come near. And you didn't say, oh, try harder, clean yourself up. You literally said, I'm coming to take your sin and give you my righteousness. What a wonder. What a glory. Father, may we be lights. May we be as shining lights in a broken and fallen world. God, may we not try to do it in our own strength. May we know, like Moses that came off the mountain, and his face shone, shine upon us, we pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May that be true of us. And may, Lord, you use that, we pray, here in Kaiser, to bring many to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Help us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, I really encourage you. Um, I, know, I know the notes, you don't have notes there in front of you. I really encourage you this week, if you get a chance, consider those texts that I've, I've I listed them all with there. Um, consider those texts, read them, behold them, behold them, see the glory that it is to follow Christ in that way. Um, I have a couple of announcements for us. Um, the next youth night will be August 27th, um, as, we, as we close up here, August 27th. Uh, the reason for these changes, a lot of them, were to do, we were trying to work around Labor Day.